0: Uh-oh, am I all right there? Am I in, a good, I'm in an okay spot? All right, how's everybody doing? Doing okay this morning? All right. Can I get that table? I forgot my table. Oh. Full service. Thanks, man. I take back all the mean things I say about you all the time. All right, well, welcome to Cornerstone, glad that you're here. Um, We're going to be opening God's Word here in a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your uh, phones, if you have your notepads, if you've got it memorized, man, that's great too. But we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, so you can go ahead and turn there. We've been studying the book of 1 Peter, and specifically, one of the reasons that I was so excited to study this particular letter is because of the dynamic of, wow, Peter starts off calling all of us, giving us an identity, helping us understand Who we are as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are what are called elect exiles. Now that term, and we've tried to kind of tease it out in different ways, but on one end, an exile is this one that this is not their home, this is not where we belong. Um, We know that we're here for a little bit of time, and so we know from an exile standpoint, again, this is not who we are, or or excuse me, where we belong, or even kind of in in some ways, I would even say this, it's going to be just difficult that's the other thing we're going to learn on the book the, the book of first peter but the other thing he connects it to is this idea of elect and then he springs forward on this idea of what it means to be elect it's not just a term to be argued over like theological circles do but it's a designation of explanation that before the foundations of the world, and this is the way that it talks about it in this, is that every single one of us in here that know Jesus Christ, we were chosen not just to be one of his very own, but we were chosen, <coughs> excuse me, the book of like Acts talks about in Acts 17, the very time and the place in which we would live, the very way in which we would interact, the struggles and the trials that we would experience, every last aspect and facet of life, when you think about it, God is designed in a very special, a very powerful way to not only reflect who he is, but calling us into it for that moment. This last year or so, 15 months, so often while I'll hear people say, you know, oh my gosh, like what a terrible time to be alive or, you know, however they're going to frame it. This was the time that God put us in. We'll talk about how fearful we are for our kids in the future. Let me just tell you this, I'm not fearful for them because whatever future is coming, God is there. So in other words, again, when we talk about this idea of elect, He's talking about specifically not only choosing us and making us his very own. He he talks about in like verse 3 that we have been born again to a living hope. We have been called sometimes even to walk through trials. But even the difficulties that we walk through, God has purpose in them. He's shaping us and he's molding us and he's transforming us into the image of Jesus. God has never in his entire existence felt like things were out of control. He was never wondering what was gonna happen. Our God reigns supreme over all things. And so Peter really wants us to get that. Now where we're gonna go today, and I just wanna kinda slow you down for just a little bit. We're gonna, we're gonna kinda look at this idea, okay, so, We are to be this group of people that is supposed to live as exiles knowing that we have a future home. But the question now that Peter's gonna start getting to is okay, but how do we live here now? What does this look like, right? Because we can't just check out. Like we can't just pretend like nothing here. We'd have to go to like a monastery or a convent or you know something like that where we'd have to get away from things. But I don't believe we're supposed to disengage and just kind of wait for Jesus to come back. But I would say this is that what he's gonna convince us of is that the more that we are detached from this world from the standpoint of getting our claws out of this world, the more useful we will actually be for this world. The less we cling to it, and again, just get this in the back of our minds and we'll talk this through, the less that we cling to it, actually the more useful that we will be for this world in which we live in. Now, if you got your Bibles, look down in verses 10 through 12, and I'm just going to kind of go through there and run us into verse 13. That's really where we're going to start today. But in in verse 10, he starts talking about these prophets that were writing Scripture. And and later on in 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 2 Peter 1, it talks about they were writers that were led along by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. So in other words, the very Bible that you have in front of you, understand this, God wrote that book. He ordained it. He he was the one who revealed it, but he did it through these different authors, the way that they were, their styles, their language that they spoke, but it is written by God. But he talked about this idea that those prophets that were writing it realized they weren't writing it for themselves. In fact, they realized there was coming a time after the coming of the Messiah in which all of these people now would not only receive the Holy Spirit, but they would be these people that would be alive at a time unlike any other. And in fact, in the looking forward, I think this, I think they were going, oh my goodness, those people, do they understand how amazing it's gonna be to be alive at that time? Now let me ask you this question. When's the last time you just thought, I can't believe I'm alive right now? This is crazy. Because it wasn't only the prophets. If you look down in verse 12, even the angels were longing to look into these things. I mean, the angels are even sitting there going, no way, look at what God is doing. Look what's happening in this particular world. And so what Peter's doing is he's wanting all of these to understand that even in the midst of their difficulties and their heartaches and the realities that they were facing, the very time at which they were born, the place at which they were at, the families that they were in, the moms, the dads, the kids that they were a part of, every last facet of it, this is a great time to be alive. But now he's gonna look and look down in verse 13. He's going to lay out this idea now of this word, therefore. Now, let's just think about this. When we see the word, therefore, what question do we ask? What's the therefore, therefore? In other words, he's saying, based on everything that I've just said, now what he's going to do is he's going to say, I'm going to call you to live now a different life. Notice he doesn't call them to live this unique life before he first tells them who they are and who God is. But he's gonna lay out three commands. And here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look down in your Bible and I want you to kind of get ready because I want you now to go and study this for yourself because just because I say it doesn't make it true. We, we, we need to be studiers of God's word. We need to be like the Bereans were that they were noble, considered noble-minded because they studied God's word. But there were three commands that are gonna become important to where we're going today. In verse 13, if you look down there, There's this first command to set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first command. And we're gonna talk about how this plays into everything he just wrote here in a second. His second command is found down in in, uh, verse 14 in which now we are to live these lives. He's he's gonna call it this way. He's gonna say become holy. It's actually not the word be. It's more of this idea of I want you now to become holy. That's the second command. And the final command is this idea of when he talks about now the way that we're called to live, is he's going to give them this command to live in such a way that you do so in the fear of God. So the first one has everything to do with this idea of setting your hope. The next one has to do with becoming holy. And the third one that he's going to kind of lay out for us has to do with this idea now of living a life that understands the fear of God. So let's start with the first one. If this amazing life we're called to, well, now how do we live this amazing life that he's called us to? Well, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know this, I've been hammering hard on this idea of our future reality, of, of living a life in which we understand that this, this home that we live in is temporal, that all the heartaches, the difficulties, there will come a day in which this will all be gone, it'll be done. The grace that's coming with Jesus is this idea that the longing that every human being has, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, this longing for the world to be set straight is the grace that's coming with Jesus Christ one day. It's the reality of of this salvation that he spoke of. He is going to take all those things that have been wronged and he is going to set them correct. Now from this, setting our hope in this, it's beginning to take all of our eggs and to put them in that basket because this world is a world that's coming to the end is that now he's going to lay out these two realities that start to happen to us when we, we set our hope fully on the grace to be brought when Jesus comes back. Well, here's the first one. The moment that you begin to do that, he says in there, is that you begin to prepare your mind, he says, for action. Well, what does that mean? Well, back in the day, dudes used to wear kind of dresses kind of thing. Just go with me, Okay. And the times when they would go off to war, times when they would go to work, and even if you remember right, when the prodigal's father ran to him, remember it says in there, he took basically his cloak, and it says he girded up his loins, which just sounds super strange, but here's all it means. He took his cloak, and he kind of tucked it in around him so that he could run. Again, if he was gonna be in battle, you don't want your dress kind of getting in your way, because when you're in battle, and you gotta get your dress in the way, right, you're gonna fumble all over the place. When you go to work, it just doesn't, it doesn't do a good job. What happens is, is that the more that I begin to set my hope on the grace that's to be brought at the return of Jesus Christ, I kind of get rid of the unnecessary things in this life that are not essential to what is the grace that's to be brought, it's similar to like in Hebrews 12:1, this idea of getting rid of all the entanglements and the sin. It's just getting rid of these things that keep you from truly being able, and I love that word, to enter into action. Now we know this, and again, I'm going to say some things that aren't necessarily wrong, but when we start accumulating things, we start accumulating houses, we start accumulating cars, we start accumulating, I mean, it was just all the accumulation we do, you know this, it doesn't decrease stress, it amplifies stress. I love my kiddos. I do. But with each one I've added, it amplified my stress. (laughs) That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is like, man, don't get married. Like, stay free from that stuff. Because even when I got married to my wife, I promise you, it amplified her stress. (laughs) These things in life, his whole point is, is it keeps our minds ready for action. Don't accumulate for yourselves things. Again, it doesn't mean those things are evil, that those things are wrong, but his whole point is is that the more things that now I begin to put in the the basket of the now versus now placing things in the basket of the future, in other words, storing up treasures in heaven, it just becomes an obstacle in many ways in how I live my life. I'm not able to be nimble. But not only that, he he says in there this statement that also now being sober-minded sober we can kind of get that one anybody that's ever maybe gone uh, through drunkenness or maybe been high before you know what it's talking about here is that you're not in control of your faculties see his other point is is all these things that you accumulate begin to do something inside of you they begin to cloud your judgment that's one of the things that happens as we get our jobs, as stress increases, as we feel like we've got to keep up with the Joneses, as we, we try to do all these different things. You know this, just the stress and the pressures of life begin to encapsulate us and grow on us, kind of like what he was talking about, the weeds and the soils of when Jesus was talking about the gospel being planted. They just begin to press us down, and we can't see the forest for the trees, This word sober-minded means that as now I begin to set my hope fully on the grace that's to be brought, I begin to see the forest for the trees. I begin to see things like I'm supposed to. I begin to understand the moves that I'm supposed to make in this world for action. I can now see things rightly because those things now aren't clouded down. Later in in Romans 5.8, he's gonna talk about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. He says the same thing, be sober-minded, why? Because he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and I really believe out of this context of setting your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought, the lie that that Satan tells us is is that get everything you can now, pour everything into the moment, Try at every cost that you can to be able to now set yourself up because there is no tomorrow. And I would even say this. Those of you, that are you, of you that are younger in here, don't buy this lie. You don't have to get it all now. You don't have to live for everything in this world. You don't have to get all the vacations. Again, nothing wrong with vacations. But you don't have to get all the material things. You don't have to get all of that stuff. Why? Because this life is temporal. And in fact, I really do believe that one of the main reasons why we get ourselves engrossed into this life so greatly is we, because we don't believe the next life is actually going to be better. It's gonna be physical and tangible. We're going to do things. We're going to work. We're going to climb mountains. We're going to cross seas. We're going to engage ourselves in this world, meaning that I don't have to try to get everything out of this life now because I can't. But I have an eternity to be able to get out of the life that's to come completely because I have all of that time. His whole point is pull yourself above the fray. By setting your hope fully to be brought to you, this grace when Jesus Christ returns. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. In the second command, he, he, he starts off in verse 14. He says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't, don't be caught up in who you used to be. That's, that's who you used to be. You've been born again to a living hope, that's not who you are anymore. But as he who called you is holy, you also, and, and again, I think it's better to translate this, you also become holy in all your conduct since it's written, you shall be holy for I'm holy. Now, what's he, why, why is he giving this command and what does it have to do with anything about what he's been talking about in this, this life that he's called us to? One of the most important things I believe we can establish in our mind is that the God who called us, the one who is the the one who reigns supreme over all things, he's holy. In fact, I would put it this way in my life, and I think even as I look around at others, I think we've lost the sense of the holiness of God. Samuel's mom was praying for him, and as she began to pray, she just said, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There's there's no rock like our God. He's other, he's distinct, he's pure. I think sometimes in our shucking and jibing with sin, we can begin to think of God as our little buddy. We can begin to think of him as a genie that's granting us wishes that we rub like a like a, a rabbit's foot. God's not that. Our God sits enthroned above all things. He is He is moving the universe and every aspect and facet of it. He is in control of all the different governments that are in the world. In fact, I would say this, over the last 15 months, one of the things I've noticed in my life and the life of the church is one aspect of the holiness of God is there is no governmental system that ever comes into being apart from the fact that our other distinct, pure, holy God allowed it to happen. He reigns supreme. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think in 14 through 16, it's this idea that that we need to understand, verse 15, that he called you. This holy one, he called you not because you were holy, okay? Let's just get that straight. Everybody in here, if you think somehow that you were good enough for God to call you, you don't get what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Followers of Jesus completely understand that there was nothing good in us whatsoever. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were shamed completely. We were outside of the people of God. We just we didn't even belong. And yet in God's grace and in his goodness, he called you. You ever thought about how crazy that is? Just to sit back, and again, I don't know your theological persuasion, and I'm not even trying to get into an argument through Calvinism or Arminianism, but somewhere in there, no matter what you believe, there is a God in heaven that, in spite of you, He called you. He made you one of his own kids. He didn't save you by obedience. Never get that idea within your head. I was talking to somebody earlier about a different faith, and in this faith, it, there seems to be this idea that I have an obedience that's somehow in me. I can somehow make myself meritoriously okay with God. But no, He didn't save me by obedience. I'm a kid now who, because of Him being my dad and the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, then I am obedient. I've left that world that I used to live. I'm other, I'm distinct, and I'm to become that. I think what the world needs right now is a holy church. Not perfect, that's why I think this word become is so important. None of us in here on any level, yes, we are seen completely holy and good in God's eyes as he stands and looks upon us as his kids, but man, this week I gave complete testimony to lack of holiness in my life, and that was just this morning because my wife was gone and I had to get my kids ready for church. The world doesn't need perfect people, the world needs people who are becoming holy, other, distinct. See, that word holy carries within it this idea of taking on the character of someone when I become them. I think the character of who we take on is important here because you're gonna see this woven all throughout the book of 1 Peter. The one whose character we take on is Jesus Christ. We're to be these distinct ones, right, that are set apart and, and holy, that have taken on the character of Jesus. And now, not only are we able to sit above the fray and see the world as we ought to, but once we do now, because of the character of Jesus now transforming us and us being made into his image, we now can go and we can engage the world like Jesus did. You ever thought about who he engaged? He engaged everyone. He was above the fray. Anybody that's ever studied the life of Jesus, he knew this wasn't his home. He knew his home was sitting enthroned while angels sang about him being holy, holy, holy. But yet in that moment of being above the fray and he came down to earth, he went and he just loved people radically. Holiness and love are so often connected together. And he didn't just love the people that were like him. That's the other thing in the last 15 months. Have you ever noticed that? The only people we allow ourselves to be around now are people that think like me. How in the world is the church gonna ever engage a lost and a dying world if we only hang around people that think and talk like me? Holiness means it's an understanding that taking on the characteristic of Jesus, I will go talk to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but I'll also go talk to the drunks and the tax collectors. I'll talk to the prostitutes. To be holy with that mind of action that he's talking about truly now does see the world in such a way that I'm able now to enter into it and bring the characteristic of Jesus Christ into the world. And it's not just me individually. It's a y'all thing. We're all called to do that. This week in my engagement, we, we sometimes think of Simi Valley as this little cloister, this little safe place outside of, you know, the dastardly evil world of Los Angeles. (laughs) <laughs> Simi Valley's broken it's not holy this community so desperately needs the lordship of Jesus his holiness to come beyond to come and bear upon it let me just say this and that's us that's who we are but we need to see ourselves for who we are as ones who are becoming holy to engage the world. Now, here's the last one. Oops, I was supposed to do that and I didn't. 1 Peter 1:17. And if you call on him, who's fa- who, him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and here's our command, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay, this one is one I think we need to slow down for just a second here. Fear. Now just for a second, think in your mind, when I say the word fear, what do you think of? Okay, keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. Everybody keep it to yourself for now. If I give this a free-for-all, it's gonna go chaotic. All right, so just just yourself, just yourself. What do you think about when you think fear? Now, a lot of theologians, the kind of commentarians that I read, they really quickly wanted to make this reverence and awe, that live in reverence and awe throughout the time of your exile. And there's a part of that that's true. But have you ever read what happens when somebody stands before God? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah stood before him and it says he fell to his face as though dead. And some people, well, that was the Old Testament before Jesus came in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Really, Revelation 1, John stands before the living Christ and in terror, he falls before him and Jesus has to tell him, get up. There's this side of it, and again, I think this is why Peter connects it. Not only is he our father, but look at that. He is a judge, And we're going to talk about here in a second what this means to be judged as a follower of Jesus. It's completely different than to be judged as not a follower of Jesus. But I just want us for a moment just to understand our God who sits in unapproachable light is not to be trifled with. He's not to be toyed with. In the book of Exodus, right? This is one of my favorite sections out of the Bible. It says, and God spoke these words. He's getting ready to lay out the whole idea of the 10 commandments. And he said, I am the Lord you God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He said, in other words, he's saying, do you understand who I am? And then he gives them the 10 commandments. And look at what happens at the end of the 10 commandments. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. Now, let's just be honest. If you would have saw that, Come on. Oh, Oh, I would have pushed you in front of me in a heartbeat, you know. Save me. It says, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. We'll listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we what? They knew what was up. This God was not to be trifled with. Now watch what Moses says to the people. He says, don't fear, which is strange. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. Don't fear him, but what? Fear, how does that fit together? I shouldn't have said fear him because in that idea, the idea is is you're fearing the wrong thing. See, so often what happens is we begin to fear, uh, you know, what what man can do to us. Some of us feared a virus. Some of us feared government overreach. Some of us feared the fact that we were going to have to be in the house for the same people for an extended amount of time without murdering them. Some of us, we just, we feared all kinds of stuff over the last 15 months. I think what God identified is, is that we feared a lot of things, but we didn't fear God. See, there's this reality is that the one that we fear most controls us. A great book that I read once by Ed Welch, just a great book that lays out this idea that whatever we fear controls us the most. And when God is the one who fears us, oh, my goodness, there's nothing greater than that because he's protecting us. That's the fear he's going to put into us not to do something. Let me, let me see if I can explain it using an illustration. A good friend of mine told the story once about being over to a guy's house that, that, that I don't know, but he was just telling me about it, who raised um, uh, uh, German shepherds. Now, anybody that knows anything about German shepherds, I, I grew up with labs. Labs are dumb. They're idiots, man. They slobber all over you. They're just your buddy. German shepherds, they're killers, man. Rip your throat out. And he said he's watching. And as he was watching, this one little tiny kid started running towards this German shepherd. And he said everything in him was like, I wanted to go save that little kid, but I didn't want to die. The little kid went up and just started hugging the dog. And the dog was like being all playful. And he said, i was just watching this thing like, what in the world? That kid should be deathly afraid of that incredible beast with the fangs like this, right? I mean, he's just like, he didn't know what to do with it. Well, the day kind of went on, right? And he kind of wasn't thinking about it. And all of a sudden, again, from this deck that he sat on, he watched this little kid running out towards the woods. And at the other side of the woods was this creek As that kid began to run out, that same German shepherd that had so much just played with that kid started chasing after that little kid and growling and barking at that kid and stood right in front of this kid and just began to growl at him. The kid cried and turned around. But what is so fascinating is I think that's a picture of God for his kids. See, everything about who we are, God is drawing us near to make us his very own. And at any point now we are called to, we are, we are called to enjoy God with everything that we are. But if we begin to wander from God, that same God that we're speaking about here is like that German shepherd. And he will turn around and he will growl at us. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this idea of God disciplining those that he loves. Our God is the fearful God who will now call us back just in the same way so that we may not sin. He's to be feared. But I think on another level, when you think about this, is that he talks about this idea of being ransomed is because God has spent his whole, our whole existence, not his, our whole existence trying and seeking to draw humanity to himself. The garden was designed to be a place in which we would enjoy God. The the whole reality of now the fall is that humanity was separated from God, no longer able to commune with him like they were designed to. The whole Old Testament is a beautiful picture of how God is drawing this group of people called Israel to himself. And even the work of Jesus was done so that we can be near God. And by the time we get to Revelation 21, suddenly we realize that the whole destiny of humanity is that we would live with him forever, and he would be our God and we would be his people. We are designed to be near him. And our God won't share us with anyone else. And as a good dad, he will bring us back into the fold, even if it means growling at us. That's the first aspect of it. But the second aspect of it is this. In verses 20 through 21, he lays out this idea that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He says, who through him are believers in God who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's he saying here? It's still connected to this command that we're to, to, to live out our lives in fear, but now he's gonna talk about something of this grand plan of God. It started way back in eternity past. In other words, you have to understand this. This salvation wasn't a new thing somehow at the time of Jesus. God has been planning it all the way back before he even created humanity. It was designed in which Jesus Christ would be resurrected. He would defeat all things that stood against him, sin and Satan and death. And at the very beginning of 1 Peter, we learn this, that Jesus Christ is returning one day. Our king reigns supreme. And on some levels, I think Peter is saying, when you look at this gigantic picture of what he's doing, it should just cause us to feel small. See, I think humanity doesn't realize we were created to feel tiny like that. I think even we were created to fear. I took my kids to the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, and I won't tell you which child, but we'll just go with it. We get out there, right, and, and this child walks up to me and says, hey, can we go over near it? And can you like hold my belt loop? And kinda like, can I, can I lean out over the top of the, of, the, of the Grand Canyon just so I can feel what it feels like? And being a good dad, I totally went with him. And so we go over to the edge, right? And, and I saw this kid, not I didn't mean him, this kid. And um so anyways, this my child, I, I grab my child's belt loop, right, and and my child begins to lean way out over and, and and I this particular child, whenever whenever like nervousness and fear happens, this child starts to do this. And so I've got the belt loop, and and this is happening, right? And he goes, pull me me back, pull me back, right? So I pull him back, and he goes, oh, my gosh. And he was doing this. Dad, that's the greatest thing ever, but I am so weak right now because I am so scared. (laughs) If any of you tell my wife that I did that with my child, (laughs) I will bring curses down upon you because I am a holy man. What do I mean by that? I think we're designed to want that. I think we want to fear things. I think it's why people jump out of airplanes, right? I mean, I'll never forget, the only time I've ever jumped out of an airplane, it's like, why would people seriously, like, why would you jump out of an airplane? That's stupid. But yeah, when, when everything was all said and done, I'm like, oh my gosh, that thing was incredible. I would totally do it again, which just shows you my stupidity. I think it's why people cross the widest ocean. I think it's it's why people go out and surf the big waves. I think everything in us knows that we were created to be this way. We're created to be on the edge. I think that's why we love it when missionaries come home and tell us stories of what they're doing. We're just like, oh my gosh, my heart just longs for that. I I want to be having that same particular feeling. I want that. I used to take people back in the day up into the mountains and I would always look at them and I would always say to them, listen, there's nothing more cool than to enjoy the mountains, but understand the mountains can be enjoyed, but they can kill you. I took a a group back in with me, and I I didn't think it would be me that would be the one that would encounter almost death. We're out, you know, and we go fly fishing that day for our food, and I kind of caught mine first, and I'm over, I'm I'm skinning all the fish, and all of a sudden, in skinning all these fish, through the woods, I start seeing the trees start to shake. And out comes this huge sow grizzly. I'm sitting there with a fish in this hand and basically a pocket knife in the other hand. And in that moment, I know what I do, whether I fight, flight, or freeze. I freeze. I just sat there like this. And I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and she's looking at the fish, right? And I'm just like, oh my goodness, I could die. I'm thinking I'm just gonna throw fish at her, that's the only thing I can think of, right? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy that's with me has got this huge old 44, and just boom, boom, boom. I'm still like this, but that sow grizzly runs off. And we got all done, and I just looked at him, and I go, oh my gosh. I loved that. (laughs) It can kill you, but we are called to enjoy it. When God designed humanity, let me just put it this way, he is the mountain, and he designed us to enjoy him. But never, ever forget this, he is not to be trifled with. He's saying to us, look, yes, I have created this incredible plan for you. I have called you to it. This is the most incredible thing in the world that I've called you to. But you need to set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to Jesus, because you need to be able to see what's going on out there. Because when God's people don't know how what to do and not to see that's going out there, we just get ourselves caught up in dumb things. And this last 15 months, church, the church, not just Cornerstone, me, all the church, we have gotten caught up in dumb things, dumb things, because we've lost sight. We're become holy. Why? Because this world needs the church. Later on, we're going to start talking about the church as a temple, this encounter where we we come together and we meet the living God. We are to be that for our world. But I think also, don't you ever feel like the church has just gotten too safe? We're too safe. In fact, as I look around this room and I see so many different young people, I think one of the greatest reasons that young people are dropping out of the church is because the church is too coddled and safe. We need to encounter again the living Christ, the one who's called us now to go and to live in these ways. Again, not just crazy. I don't wanna do big things for Jesus, like from the standpoint of just doing them to do them. I know deep within you if you're a follower of Jesus and deep within me as a follower of Jesus we're not going to be happy unless we're joining Jesus Christ going all the way now again I don't think that happens overnight that's something that gets learned over time but the rest of first Peter I'll just warn you is all about this it's all a beckoning into what God is doing Now if you don't know Jesus, let me speak to you right now. It is one thing to be a follower of Jesus and understand that I have been ransomed. I am one who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. I stand firmly in Christ, and now any judgment that I face that Peter is gonna talk about in the rest of 1 Peter is merely just a dad that is keeping his church in line. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, understand this. You will stand before him one day and you will sit there in absolute horror and shame because this God that is in heaven is one that's not to be trifled with. He is good. He is loving. He is a God that even right now, I believe, is beckoning out to you to be drawn to him. But you do not want to encounter that God being outside of Jesus Christ. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so today, I just would beg you. I would beg you that this would be the day that you would bend your knee. I think what you'll find is that on one end, maybe it feels like he's that German shepherd that's sitting there growling at you, but when we bend that knee, suddenly we realize there's something different. We are called now to enjoy him and love him. He is beckoning us near us because he is our father, but it begins right now with you bending to thee, to that great king. Maybe there's even some of you in here that have been around church for a while, but you know you're playing games. You know it, quit. Some of you in here are even young wondering, gosh, where do I fit on this? I've kind of grown up around church my whole life. I don't even know if I really want to follow Jesus. Oh, do not in any way toy with the greatness of who God is. Run to that God, know that God, love that God, but don't play with that God. And so here as the band comes up and as we get ready to pray... There may be some of you that are sitting out there that are saying, you know, I've never followed Jesus Christ before. I would love to talk to you. I think there's even some of you out there that you know you're, you're, you're playing with God. You know deep within you, you're toying with him. And I would say it is our great God beckoning you back to him. I will pray with you. Any of the other elders would pray with you. But for the rest of us, Let me just say this. The rest of 1 Peter is going to be calling us out to go join God in what he's doing. Do not miss any Sunday coming up. Because every aspect of it is going to be a new tale and a new story of God calling us into the greatest mission, the greatest journey of all time. A journey that's end is absolutely phenomenal. The journey that is going to be hard and difficult, but a journey that I promise you, you will not want to miss because it is a journey ordained by God and so therefore it is good and is incredible. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless y'all.